Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech and offshore renewables and how we'll meet our future energy needs. My name is Miriam Noonan, Analysis and Insights Manager at Ori Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. Slating offshore wind is an essential ingredient for the UK's energy future. Only by pushing installations into deeper waters will we be able to meet our net zero targets for renewable energy output by 2050. Slating wind will bring investment and support direct and indirect jobs, often in economically and socially deprived areas. In the UK alone, studies have shown that floating wind could create 29,000 jobs and generate 43 billion for the UK economy by 2050. So how is the UK developing this vibrant indigenous floating offshore wind industry? I'm joined by three industry experts to explore this question and more. Good afternoon, Una Brosnan, Offshore New Markets Manager at Mainstream Renewable Power. And just, I suppose, my background is I'm a civil engineer. I've been working in offshore wind for over a decade and you're now joined with Mainstream and very interested, I mean, to see how floating wind in particular is evolving and, and Mainstream in particular is looking at developments right across the globe, in particular, how we transition across from fixed to floating wind. Hello, uh, Gavin Mackay, Head of Energy Industries at Highlands and Islands Enterprise, HIE. We're the uh, Scottish Government's Economic and Community Development Agency for the north of Scotland and the islands. But I'm here with uh, two hats on today as well, also as a member of the Deep Wind Cluster Steering Group. And Deep Wind is the um, UK cluster champion for floating wind. Hi everybody, my name is Ralph Tor. I'm a program manager at the RE Catapult and I run the Catapult's Floating Offshore Wind Centre of Excellence. So it's a collaborative program led by ourselves and 15 industry partners. Um, the program was established to accelerate the commercialisation of floating offshore wind. We do have a focus on the UK initially as the world's leading floating market, but clearly all our partners have aspirations to use the skills and experience they develop in the UK to deploy floating offshore wind to take advantage of kind of international opportunities as well. So yeah, mechanical engineer by background, but my day-to-day -day role is kind of working with our partners to develop and deliver the floating offshore wind centre of excellence programme. So to kick off our conversation today, I think we should get back to basics. So can you give us a quick description of what floating wind actually is? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose I'll start with what fixed is initially to start traditional offshore wind as we, we probably best know it as is embedded within the ground. And actually what we're seeing is a transition to more floating substructures as we go to deeper waters. Traditionally to date, we would have seen fixed bottom extend its remit up to about 60 metres. Beyond that, then we were seeing challenges in, in developing uh, economical or optimising the structures basically for deeper than 60. So hence here, here became the challenge and hence the move to floating wind. We've got different types of floating wind structures in the market at the minute. I think there's over 30 concepts of floating wind being explored at the minute, a number of leading ones, um, which we've seen in a number of demonstrations across the globe. Particularly, we've seen two, a spar and a semi-submersible off the coast of Scotland. There's wider ones then in the lines of barge systems. And then we've got some other hybrid type of systems as well, alongside tension leg platforms. 
So quite a little bit of a spread across there. But I suppose what I would like to reinforce is floating technology or floating substructures are nothing new. They have been used to date um, right across the oil and gas sector. And here, I think, is the opportunity to bring that wealth of experience right across into to offshore wind and prepare us for commercialization. And I suppose there is an element then of condensing the concepts that are out there in the market. In particular, we want to condense them when it comes to um, serial fabrication and obviously driving cost reduction. And what are the advantages of deploying floating wind farms across the UK? In the UK, we're in quite a unique situation. We're actually, we've kind of got a blend of shallower water out in parts of the North Sea. But if you head west or, or kind of north, it gets deeper. So in the UK, although we have quite a large area that we can deploy fixed bottom wind, even we are envisaging that floating wind is going to be required to deliver our kind of net zero targets. But again, looking internationally, there are other markets like Japan, west coast of America that don't have shallow water. So even if they want a relatively modest amount of offshore wind, it's going to have to be floating. So yeah, not only does that unlock this huge volume or additional kind of volume of wind resource that we can access, but actually on a kind of market by market basis, it just allows offshore wind to be deployed in, in kind of all markets, whereas previously others might have been inhibited. The other benefit of unlocking more area isn't just growing the aggregate capacity that we could install, but it, it just reduces the requirement to squeeze offshore wind into certain areas. So if you restrict the areas you can build offshore wind, and you want to build more of it, you create clusters, more kind of dense deployment. And in some places that's appropriate, but in other places that can lead to challenges around the environmental impact or even just kind of social acceptance. So again, if we remove this requirement to work in shallow water, you just give us a lot more flexibility about when and where we deploy the technology as well. Looking at the UK specifically, and I guess one of the key benefits of floating offshore wind in the UK isn't just reducing the environmental impact or the kind of social acceptance or allowing us to deliver aggregate targets. But there's a really good opportunity in the UK for floating offshore wind to create, you know, to be a key driver of economic growth. And a lot of that economic activity will need to be physically close to where those projects are. So if we're able to deploy floating wind in areas that haven't historically hosted fixed bottom wind, then we are bringing industrial activity to these areas, creating employment and the like. So I would say one of the kind of strongest benefits to the UK is the fact that floating wind will bring economic activity to new areas in the UK. We're mainly talking about kind of Scotland, northeast Scotland, north Scotland, northeast of England, but also the kind of Celtic Sea. And I think it's really important the industry recognises that we're not just delivering kind of green electrons, but that creating jobs and, and employment is a really big part of what we can deliver and should be aspiring to deliver as well. What role will floating offshore wind play in achieving our net zero targets? 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 and 75 gigawatts by 2050. Ralph gave a very full answer there and struck on a, a number of really good points. So floating wind suited to deeper water, further from shore and more energetic wind regimes. So it gives you that flex to increase the production of decarbonized electricity potentially green molecules in, in future, depending on which route to net zero we, we take in the UK. It opens up these energetic waters and gives us flex. It um, reduces, I guess, the um, constraints that uh, ultimately are going to build up in areas where we've got higher densities of, of fixed bottom wind. So we are fortunate in that we've got this mixture in the UK 
I think the key thing for floating will be, and, and we'll come on to this, I'm sure, is in achieving the same or similar cost reduction trajectories as fixed bottom has achieved. Floating offshore wind now is price comparable with um, combined cycle gas turbines. So it's a kind of a new benchmark for electricity production in the UK and it's green. If we can go on a similar journey with floating wind, then there's really very little to say that there's any limiting factor as to how big a role it can play in net zero. So thinking about how to create opportunities to put the UK at the centre of the floating offshore wind market, I'm hearing a lot about floating offshore wind quickly becoming recognised as an essential element of the global electricity supply once it's fully commercialised. So how can the UK ensure that it retains its world leading position in fixed bottom wind and floating offshore wind? I think that's a very good point. I mean, we've done a tremendous amount of work in demonstrating projects here in Scotland in particular. And I think, you know, we need to build on that. And this comes with lobbying to the government around the business case for floating wind and the opportunity for the UK PLC, I suppose, around reaping the benefits, the economic benefits, and and equally then building a supply chain within the UK. I think investment is going to be key, making sure that we have strategic investment across, you know, whether it's port infrastructure or working with supply chain to ensure that they're prepared and they've got facilities that are suitable to to meet the needs of the growing sector. I think skill sets in particular is going to be really, really key. And I think with the transition from oil and gas as well and, and looking at that wider energy transition, I think will be key and focus on that would be instrumental in making sure that we keep central and we build upon the projects we have today. So I think we're in a very fortunate position to be one of the leaders in floating wind here. But unfortunately, it's not the time to stop. We need to make sure that we keep the the momentum going on building the business case for it and equally then realising cost reduction and economic benefits and obviously um, getting us to commercialisation of our first wind park here in the UK. Yeah, maybe just add that we do have a tremendous opportunity in, in Scotland and the UK in floating. If you look at um, some of the skill sets that we've uh, developed over decades in oil and gas production, a lot of these technologies and know-how are what underpins floating wind. So all of the know-how around creating a structure that's stable, survives these these conditions, is cost-effective to produce and is anchored, moored, tethered in a system that's effective and cost efficient. These are all skills that have been developed in the UK already and are being deployed all over the world. So it's really important, I think, to transition those businesses and that industry into floating wind. And I think that is certainly one of the things that underpins the the deep wind cluster. It's about mobilising the know-how and capability in the oil and gas industry into floating wind to create this this world-beating opportunity for floating. And how could floating offshore wind play a key role in a just energy transition from fossil fuels to renewable sources? I think as Gavin just touched on, there's a huge amount of similarity between oil and gas and floating wind particularly. Um, A lot of the technology that is being deployed in floating wind is effectively lifted from the oil and gas industry, and particularly in the North Sea, slightly kind of shallower water as well, you know, very similar operating conditions for, you know, a lot of the offshore oil and gas assets as those will be experienced by the kind of UK's floating offshore wind fleet when it goes out. Really good technical similarities between the two. And obviously the UK has a really strong pedigree in oil and gas subsea engineering. So I think what's really 
key in managing the energy transition, I guess, is to make sure that it is managed in that as the activity in the oil and gas sector declines, we are proactively increasing the activity, particularly in floating wind, so that we can move and transition skills and experience from oil and gas into floating wind. If oil and gas declines rapidly over the next kind of 10 or 20 years and floating doesn't ramp up in line with that, there is a danger that some of the skill and experience is just lost or capabilities lost into other industries, or at least we don't maximize the full impact of that. It's mainly managing that transition. And the oil and gas sector in the UK just recently signed up to the North Sea sector deal, which is a great result in terms of providing a very clear guidance on the milestones we need to deliver to reduce emissions in the North Sea. But, you know, those targets are pretty aggressive in terms of what needs to be delivered. And that's only going to accelerate the energy transition, both in terms of making sure the targets are delivered, but also just a clear statement of intent about the rate of change that we're expecting to see. Looking at those targets and the change that needs to happen in oil and gas, it is really important now that we kind of counter that but by launching a kind of large-scale floating offshore wind industry in the UK, because then it just provides this really obvious and natural opportunity for skills and experience to move out of oil and gas in a controlled fashion and, and into floating wind. And I think there's a bit of a danger that if we kind of drive the transition in terms of a reduction in activity in oil and gas quicker than we are able to create opportunity in floating offshore wind, then there's at least a missed opportunity, if not some more, you know, fundamental issues around kind of unemployment or at least skills and experience going elsewhere. You know, we've spoken about the role of, of floating wind in uh, achieving net zero. It's tens of gigawatts type scale. When we introduce into the mix the potential for uh, green chemical uh, production and uh, future potential uh, export markets, then that sort of envelope of what's the role of floating wind in the UK, it starts to grow. We have the North Sea transition deal. We've got the targeted innovation and oil and gas decarbonisation leasing round. And we have this uh, tremendous infrastructure in the North Sea. One of the first principles um, you, you apply when you are no longer using it for oil and gas production is what can we reuse it for? So there's potential export routes from floating wind sites a, a long way from shore, part of the UKCS and tremendously energetic waters, which can be tapped into to bring green chemicals uh, back to the UK, to markets in Europe. So really, there is no cap, if you like, on the role of, of floating wind in uh, supporting Britain's energy transition, a just transition and um, actually potentially strengthening our export position, which is no bad thing. I think that this is our opportunity at the minute to really, really condense and bring forward the learnings in particular, I suppose, from fixed bottom and, and really optimise that. I think the Catapult Centre of Excellence in particular on the floating wind side is doing some really great work in that side. And it's really making sure that we build from the knowledge and experience in from the um, supply chain and, and make sure that we capture the expertise that's out there. And I think it's enabling um, some of maybe the smaller companies in particular to see the opportunity and get visibility on opportunities is, is going to be quite key. That's great, thank you. And we already have a few floating offshore wind success stories. So 
could you tell us a little bit more or kind of share with the listeners what initiatives are currently underway to maximise UK content within floating offshore wind? Ralph, obviously, you know, floating offshore wind centre of excellence is at the centre of it all. So that might be a good place to start. So this was established a couple of years ago. We've got 15 industry partners and also support now directly from UK government. So all these stakeholders are sitting around the table and we work with them basically to develop and deliver a portfolio of projects that are intended to accelerate the commercialization of floating offshore wind. And I think it's really important to highlight that accelerating the commercialization of floating offshore wind isn't just a technical challenge. So we've got four different work streams that we work across. One is looking at the technology, but development consenting as well, supply chain and operations, and also a kind of policy work stream as well. I think the really powerful thing about the program is that we're able to work across these broad areas, which are all interrelated, but ultimately all really important to the growth of the sector. The other thing is, although we're kind of developer-led in terms of our industry partners, they're putting supply chain growth and supply chain development at the heart of what we do. So although a lot of our projects are about addressing challenges that the sector faces more broadly, and I guess the developers are at the sharp end of a lot of those challenges as they're the ones trying to get the projects up and running, in every single one of our projects, we are structuring the activity in such a way that the supply chain at the very least, has a really good exposure to understanding what those challenges are to try and stimulate ideas from within the supply chain about how we can address them. But also, I guess on the softer side, just allowing our partners to develop relationships and a kind of deep knowledge of the supply chain as well. And I think particularly in floating, there's a lot of supply chain organisations out there, particularly from oil and gas, that our partners are less familiar with. And indeed, these supply chain organisations are less familiar with our partners. So a lot of what we're trying to do in our projects, as well as just delivering the kind of objectives of the project, is try to create and build relationships between mainly the supply chain and developers, but we've also had really good engagement from the different stakeholder organisations as well. So as I say, we've now got direct support from UK government Bays. Scotch government being well involved, Crown Estate, Crown Estate Scotland, they're, they're all using it as an opportunity to kind of learn and develop and, and influence the scope of what we're doing. And, and our partners are very kind of receptive and supportive of that. So that's probably the main focus of our activity. But it's interesting, we're already seeing some of the supply chain development programs that we run that were set up not with a focus on floating, floating taking more of an interest. So OWGP, the Offshore Wind Growth Partnership, you know, that is now supporting various supply chain organisations that have a strong focus on floating and the Fit for Offshore Renewables programme as well. A number of the organisations involved in that, particularly in the programme up in the northeast of Scotland, have a very strong focus on floating. So I think there's a nice combination at the moment of floating specific activity, but also this broader activity is starting to realise that actually floating is going to be a big part of what we're doing in offshore wind generally. And, and they're able to kind of move in and help support the development of the supply chain as well. So they're probably the three main early catapult programs. There's probably three parts to this answer from my perspective. So starting with Deep Wind, this is a, an industry-led cluster. There's a number of subgroups. One of them is focused on floating wind. It's a specific area of interest that the supply chain has coalesced around. So it's got a couple of industry co-chairs and is working on a theme-based approach to 
supporting the supply chain to understand opportunities in, in floating wind and to start to access uh, these as well. That's an industry-led initiative. It's supported by a, a range of partners in public sector as well, including the, the enterprise agencies. It's a really great example of floating wind uh, developers and supply chain companies getting on the front foot to engage with each other and explore how they can develop projects in, in Scotland that will have high levels of local content in them but also with more than half an eye on the export opportunity because the majority of the global offshore wind market, as, as Ralph said, is going to be dependent on floating technologies. So there is a real opportunity in this space to develop an industry here first and to create that future export opportunity and the relationships that are forged around developing UK projects could be the ones that go on to deliver projects globally. So that's an exciting element. There is a piece as well around if, if we don't have uh, any of the capabilities within Scotland at the moment, do we need to explore appropriate and targeted inward investment to bring some of those, those skills? So those areas are fewer and further between in floating because a lot of the skills are here already. We just need to look at the success of the Aumas, uh, the Offshore Wind Manufacturing Investment Scheme, to see how effective that's been in, um, in driving an efficient UK supply chain in, in offshore wind. So areas like dynamic cabling and perhaps some of this uh, mooring and tethering systems, you can see a role in that space. As well as on the manufacturing side, there's room in the market, uh, certainly for at least uh, one of each of a steel-based design and a concrete-based design to establish a large manufacturing facility, preferably in Scotland and preferably in the Highlands and Islands. And um, that was one of the, the recent findings from the Strategic Infrastructure Assessment, which highlighted the um, capabilities in the, the Murray and Cromarty Firths as really ideally placed to establish a floating wind manufacturing cluster. And the kind of final bit, the third point of the answer, and it's a broader one, but it's around that whole market creation piece. And what we've got is a Scott Wind a currently in train. Probably the majority of the, the sites are going to be better suited to floating technologies. And the underpinning principles of Scott Wind are to create that visible pipeline of activity to stimulate uh, investment in manufacturing and in developing high levels of local content. And on top of that, we've got um, INTOGS, the targeted uh, innovation and oil and gas decarbonisation round, which is ideally placed to pull through some of these uh, energy transition and energy integration projects. So creating um, earlier routes to market for floating wind in Scotland with slightly different commercial drivers as well, which is uh, really important when, uh, when you look at the cost differential between fixed bottom wind uh, currently uh, and, and floating wind uh, today and the cost reduction trajectory it needs to go on. So it's about creating this, this market and this pool through to enable floating wind to uh, move past demonstration into a commercial deployment and ultimately through Scotland, very large scale commercial deployments with future uh, rounds being announced for probably 2024 being trailed now. Sorry, a bit of a long winded answer, but I think those are the three components that will help to 
deliver an industry in Scotland and in the UK? Yeah, I suppose more on the technical side. I mean, there's some really good initiatives run by the Carbon Trust in particular, and they're really focusing in on areas such as moorings and the dynamic cables, which Gavin mentioned there earlier. In particular, I suppose it's really around commercialization and understanding the dynamic nature of the substructures and how we can best approach this. And, you know, it's taking in a lot of uh, aspects from resilience of the designs and then obviously safety aspects as well. So I think that's very much key and central to, to ensuring that we can realize some of the cost reduction. And again, that's very um, developer and supply chain orientated. So again, it, it's it's really um, giving an opportunity for bite-side learning to get into the industry as well. And are there any technological advancements or significant cost reductions, development and consenting policies and such that have been established in recent years that we can show the industry is moving in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. And again, going back to my earlier point around um, building upon what we've already done in, in fixed bottom wind in particular, and I'll start with the substructures. I mean, as I mentioned, floating substructures are by no means new technology to the offshore industry. They've been um, been used in oil and gas for, for decades. But I suppose the intricacy is around using having a dynamic turbine built into the system and understanding the movements around the substructure. And I think, you know, there's a lot of learning we can pull from fixed bottom. However, the dynamics are quite different different but that interaction with the turbine I think there's some key learnings there that we can bring into the system export cables again mentioning um, some previous work with the the carbon trust again I think that's an area where we we do need to put a lot of focus in particularly understanding the risks and understanding the dynamics and the logistics around how we're actually going to install this and how we're going to make the system work as a whole from a cost reduction perspective, I think we can take um, some comfort in one particular ex- or two particular examples from Highwind Scotland. Equinor has been now moving to their next phase of projects in Highwind Tampon. And um, speaking with some of the individuals um, at recent panel discussions, it was really, really inspiring to see that they are looking at cost reductions in the order of 30 to 40 percent. That's a short 30 to 40 percent in, in a short space of time, really, I suppose, for looking at going from one project to the other. We are seeing, you know, movements around, say, the cables and confidence around where these are going to go, and then the cost dynamics are going to to come behind that one. Maybe not a good example to give um, metrics on that one quite yet until we get a little bit more established, but it is coming. We're seeing fabrication elements as well, having that close collaboration between designers and yards that are going to be actually um, manufacturing, ensuring that we we take that learning again, whether it's driving efficiencies in the actual um, manufacturing process or looking then wider to the logistical side, you know, being smarter about how we assemble, transport and deploy these quite a bit in the technical side. One of the first pieces of work that we did in the Centre of Excellence was a kind of cost reduction pathways project, looking at where the costs for floating offshore wind are now and uh, what potential they have to reduce. And I think the industry is now sufficiently mature to be able to deliver these sorts of studies with quite a high degree of confidence. The industry spent a lot of time doing modelling work like this in fixed bottom, and I think there's a good level of expertise in in the industry now. So I think we can have quite a high level of confidence in the outcomes of these studies. And that did highlight the importance of innovation, particularly in kind of medium and long-term cost reduction. The way that we kind of break the back of cost reduction, to use that phrase, is about scale of deployment. And scale of deployment just unlocks so much efficiency um, in the kind of project delivery process in terms of being able to kind of 
serialize activities. So longer manufacturing runs of cable, you know, larger orders, developing kind of serial manufacturing approaches for some of the components, the substructures. So I think, um, yeah, in terms of breaking the back of cost reduction, scale of deployment is going to be critical. And we're seeing a really good kind of ramp up internationally, I think, in the scale of projects. So, you know, leases are being made available for larger and larger projects, which is a good thing. But also the appetite to secure access to these leases is incredibly high as well. So I think internationally, the, the industry is moving forward really well to scale up. And as a result, we expect to see the cost to, to drop quite markedly. There's obviously only quite a small number of points on the graph at the moment. Una's highlighted a couple of the ones that we have from the Equinor developments. Um, there was a recent leasing round in France for a 250 megawatt project, and the outcomes of that haven't been communicated publicly yet. But I think the, the general understanding is that that is going to be a very strong endorsement of the potential for floating offshore wind to reduce costs. So the strike price for that, I, I think, will be a, a very kind of strong point further down the graph, uh, which is good. That scale of deployment, although it's not associated with kind of snazzy new bits of technology, is really important and it's a really big way of driving down the costs. There's also starting to be, I think, a bit of a shift in the industry about the approach to how we kind of serialize some of these approaches. Um, and I think the main area of focus at the moment is the substructures because um, not even oil and gas has manufactured substructures at, at the scale and the volume that floating offshore wind is going to require. Um, so it, it is a new challenge for us, but we're starting to see a lot of work and a lot of activity and a lot of thinking focused on how we take these more kind of bespoke fabrication processes and uh, create a kind of serial production approach. And then thinking about the future a bit more, so what action is still needed to upscale and deliver floating offshore wind in the UK? How much floating wind should the UK be targeting for 2030, 2040, 2050? Um, do you think the targets are achievable or are they ambitious enough? So at the moment, we understand that the UK is going to need at least just under 100 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2050. So the question at the moment is, is what role does floating have to play in that? And that question is currently being explored by UK government and Crown State and others in a good level of detail. But there are already um, a number of pieces of work that have been done to explore that. Some of the work that Centre of Excellence has done has looked at this exactly. And I think there's a good level of consensus in the work that's been done to date, which suggests that float offshore wind will play a significant role in 100 gigawatts. Uh, depending on the studies that you look at, it might be 30 gigawatts, 40 gigawatts, 50 gigawatts, but it's not going to be a very small part. It's definitely going to be there. And so I think in the absence of a kind of clear uh, picture of exactly where we need to be, I think the UK needs to proceed on the understanding that we're going to need to deploy tens of gigawatts of floating offshore winds by 2050. And we can expect the exact breakdown to kind of vary a bit as we go over the next couple of decades and various other things like hydrogen production kind of develop and, and we revisit the kind of modelling work. So I think based on the information we've got at the moment, the UK needs to be deploying, thinking about setting to, you know, targets deploy tens of gigawatts of floating by 2050. If we kind of break that down into more bite-sized 
pieces. At the moment, the only targets we've got in the UK, we've got a one gigawatt target for floating offshore wind by 2030. Hats off to the UK government for setting a target for 2030. I think that's great and it certainly helped focus attention on the industry. But I think if we look at the ongoing activity, Scotland leasing rounds, the newly announced Intog leasing round, the North Sea sector deal emission reduction targets that need to be delivered by 2027 and 2030, actually one gigawatt of floating by 2030 now, I think that doesn't look nearly ambitious enough. So I think increasing our ambitions for 2030 is pretty key. A, to build confidence in the fact that we can kind of predict where we're going to be, because I think that looks like an underestimate at the moment. But also, I think the 2030 target is very important to kind of focus minds on the timeliness of delivery of large projects. So whether it's two gigawatts or three gigawatts, kind of here or there, I guess, from a target's perspective. But what's really important is that making sure that we can demonstrate that we can take projects from conception through to delivery in that sort of timescale. And there are changes that need to take place in the way that we develop and deliver projects to allow that happen. So targeting an increased level of deployment by 2030 is a really good opportunity for all the all parts of industry and stakeholders to focus minds on how do we actually deliver that. Because if we then talk about setting targets for 2040, say we're looking to deploy 20 gigawatts of floating offshore wind by 2040, if we spend the 2030s delivering two gigawatts of floating offshore wind, we then need to deploy pretty much two gigawatts every year in the 2030s to deliver 20 gigawatts by 2040. And then if we want to get up to, say, 50 gigawatts by 2050, we need to deliver three gigawatts every single year of the 2040s to deliver that. So I think we need to make sure we get to 2030 with an industry that is fully capable of delivering multiple megawatts of floating offshore wind every year for the next 20 years. And if we're not there, we could face a real challenge in actually delivering our net zero targets. What more would you like to see from UK government to support the deployment of floating wind? Are we seeing the same support that was given to bottom fixed wind? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I think that the UK government has taken some significant steps, particularly in the last year around uh, route to market and obviously financial mechanisms. I mean, as Ralph mentioned there, we have multiple visibility now on the market of where floating may go. We've got Scotland, we've got Intog, we've potentially another Celtic Sea pre-commercial round in the mix at the minute. These are instrumental in, in supporting wider industry, you know, get visibility on where the investment may be required, but equally how much investment in the scale of what they need to do to prepare to, to deliver these projects. I think the next thing, and probably what my call to the UK government for support is making sure that we've got consistent issues of rounds, you know, get, making sure we get Scotland 2, round 5 out in timely manners that we can make, ensure that there isn't gaps in the supply chain. We did suffer some gaps in the fixed bottom side, and unfortunately um, that had some difficult situations for particularly, I suppose, supply chain, and particularly where, you know, you have challenges making sure that you've got uh, production rates up. 
it's instrumental that we get that right this time and um, keep the pressure and keep the urgency going. I mean, look, the big ticket item here is achieving net zero and obviously um, our climate change challenge that's in front of us. We need to make sure that 2030 is the decade of urgency. I think the government is really, really now trying to support floating wind in particular, and it is making the right moves. We've seen, as, as Ralph mentioned, we saw the, the financial mechanisms for floating wind um, being realised in the ring fencing of a pot around floating, which has been really, really uh, welcomed by industry. It has been small to start out, so we need to make sure that pot and that ring fenced financial mechanism is larger the next time and make sure that we, we are being able to deploy projects that now have been identified. And I guess to round it out, what else can industry be doing? Can we be collaborating more? Is there a better way to be sharing knowledge or what are your thoughts there? There's so many good things already in train. If you look at the floating centre of excellence, you look at the work of the Carbon Trust, you look at the global underwater hub coming along as well. There's loads of great structures in place there. I mean, this industry is going to create high value green jobs in every part of the UK, uh, largely in coastal and and rural uh, communities as well. I think the key thing that we need to build on with industry is this collaborative approach to developing higher levels of UK content in projects and working to and beyond those sector deal ambitions. So that is going to require industry to come up out of a a project level uh, view and take an industry view. And that's a really difficult thing to do. There's a little bit of getting out of the comfort zone, but uh, equally, I think we all need to get out of our our comfort zone. So um, supply chain and governments and, and, and their agencies to move into this space where we're creating this organized, sustainable huge pipeline of industrial development that is going to touch every part of the UK. I guess um, it's just everybody moving together into new new territory and you know if you're if you're comfortable are you doing it right? Thank you for taking part in today's episode it's been really interesting. It's now time to de-energize until next month. In the meantime listeners can find out more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.